It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. The brain is the body's most complex organism, one we have yet to fully understand, but like all of our body systems, it can either be injured or manifest disease that has to be treated. Neurosurgery is one of the most demanding fields in medicine with practically no margin for error when operating. One small miscalculation can have profound effects on the patient. Our guest today is Ralph Dacey. He's the former chair of the Washington University Department of Neurosurgery with decades of experience and hundreds of surgeons he's personally trained. We're delighted to have Culligan Water as our sponsor for this season of the Adrenaline Zone. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com. We caught up with Dr. Dacey at his home in St. Louis. So, Dr. Ralph Dacey, what a pleasure to have you on the Adrenaline Zone with us. Uh, we've wanted to interview somebody uh, in the medical field for a long time in an especially complex discipline like neurosurgery. So, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you very much. It's really an honor to be with you, Sandy and Sandra. Uh, you've been a neurosurgeon for decades and have trained well over 100 other neurosurgeons yourself. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about the track to enter this amazing specialty, uh, basically brain surgery. How long does it take? And what does a neurosurgery resident experience uh, while pursuing it? It has to be difficult. Well, for most of us, it's, it's um, four years of medical school and then seven years of residency after that. And then most people do a fellowship for one or two years. So it's um, about eight to nine years after medical school. Well, I was at the University of Virginia for medical school, and then I, I stayed on and did my residency there. So, you know, it, it's a long time, but I, I look back that on that now as some of the best parts of my life. It was very stimulating, and you're never so broadly competent and, and interested in so many different parts of the thing. So it's, re it's really good. Generally, residents start out sort of accruing a huge amount of information about the brain, about the diseases that affect the brain. And initially, there's a lot of emphasis on them learning how to take care of patients who are sick. Then we gradually introduce them to more and more complex surgical procedures. And by the time they're done, they really are capable to be practicing independently. You still learn, obviously, after your, your residency is completed. And uh, I think you continue to learn for your whole life with that regard. But the residency is really stimulating and it's fun to participate in a residency training program. And I think it's very stimulating to be a resident in neurosurgery. It must be pretty selective, though. When you receive interest from a potential resident, are you, is there a certain aptitude test that you're putting them through? Or how do you know someone's poised to succeed in a program like that, which is so demanding? Well, we have a pretty rigorous application process. And we can see what they've done in terms of their grades and the scores on tests that they take. Most of the residents that we interview uh, have a number of publications in peer-reviewed literature. And um, it is pretty competitive. We have about 
uh, 330 applications this year for three slots. So it is competitive. Neurosurgeons make up about 0.4% of all the physicians in the United States. So it's a competitive process. But mostly what we're looking for are people who are capable of working very hard and, and intensely, people who are capable of, of absorbing and processing a lot of technical and scientific information. Uh, we also want people that have, you know, fine character, like they're looking for in the Navy and, in the, and to be astronauts. So those are all the things that we're looking for. Like naval aviation, you know, I'm sure not everybody makes it through the program. You never know whether somebody can land an airplane or an aircraft carrier at night until they actually have to do it. Uh, what is your retention in the program? And what are the, what are the sorts of reasons why somebody might either elect to leave the program or they just don't make it through? Studies have been done about this and, and the attrition rate's probably about eight to 12% in the most competitive program. Overall, it's somewhat lower, maybe closer to four. I think the reason for that is that medical students have a, a good uh, opportunity to test the water in terms of how they're going to do a neurosurgery. And, and um, you know, so they, they're pretty well informed when they go to enter the program. But some people don't stay in the program. I think the most common reason for that is that they just learn that the intensity and the, and the degree of, of work and long hours is, is not for them. That's the, probably the most common thing. And they usually decide that in the first couple of years of residency. Sometimes we find some people who just are not capable of managing very critically ill patients and managing a lot of information and they can't process it all. That's less common. Occasionally we have people who don't have the technical manual skills to uh, perform surgery well. That's relatively uncommon, I think. But, uh, the attrition probably is oh, it's overall about, you know, 8 to 10%. That's actually not that bad for such a demanding program. Yeah, you probably, by the time you get in, you probably have been pretty carefully screened. You're committed, yeah. So you commented that during the training, you're slowly introducing people to more and more complicated types of surgeries. So these are the kind of planned events where people can think through the whole thing. But of course, if you're taking patients out of the emergency room, there's unplanned and you have to sort of react on the spur of the moment and, and just, you know, dive right in. So do you, do you incorporate that as part of the training? Cause those are two completely different situations, right? Right. We do. For example, a em typical emergency would be that, you know, a young boy struck in the temporal area of his head by baseball and has a fracture of his temporal bone and develops a blood clot uh, right under the fracture, an epidural hematoma. That needs to go to the, uh, to the operating room immediately. And the residents understand that from the beginning. And, uh, you know, they learn that quickly. And everybody on the team promotes that rapid evaluation and, and treatment of a patient like that. On the other hand, if someone has a large meningioma, like a benign brain tumor, that's growing slowly and, and has maybe produced some neurological problems, we have plenty of time to talk about that to plan it in meticulous detail and discuss it with the patient uh, so that they're completely on board and, and they know what's involved. So they're, they're quite different, but the residents are incorporated into that kind of care all the time from the beginning. And I would imagine that towards the end of a residency, if you have an emergent case, uh, such as you described with a young uh, boy hit by baseball, 
that the resident would actually perform that surgery. And the attending might be, would be there, I suppose, supervising and making sure that it goes well. But that, at that point, the, the residents are pretty fully capable of performing a surgery like that. They are. We are required to supervise them all the time. But yes, as they become more senior and more autonomous, they do much more of the procedure. And we're right there with them. And it's actually a very enjoyable part of our jobs as, as teachers of that because it's fun to teach that. And we're right there sort of shoulder to shoulder with them. So, Dr. Dacey, as you know, the adrenaline zone is, is about people who take risk. And I can't imagine anything <laughs> riskier than opening up someone's brain and, and performing surgery on it. So all of these surgeries have a considerable amount of risk. You lent me an amazing book by a pediatric neurosurgeon, Jay Wellens, uh, titled All That Moves Us. I pull a quote out of that book that to me captures the unique nature of neurosurgery. And it's, did we walk the exact fine line necessary to rid them of whatever menace brought them here, yet also managed to keep all the higher brain functions intact so the family can take home someone similar to the person they brought to me? And uh, to me, that was gut-wrenching quote. Tell us how you're trained as a neurosurgeon to approach that risk and, and how it's governed by knowledge, uh, ethics, practicality, and the like. There is a difference between people like, like you two and neurosurgeons with regard to how we deal with risk. When you did your risky and challenging things, you were risking your lives. It's different for us because we don't risk our lives. The patient is at risk. And we have to share the burden of that risk with the patient. So to do that, we have to set up a relationship with them. And that relationship is built based on the foundations of medical ethics. And the four principles that we pay attention to are autonomy. In other words, that the patient has to uh, have complete control over what's happening to his or her body. Beneficence, in other words, that we must do good. Non-malfeasance, that we must avoid harming the patient at all costs. And then uh, justice or equality. So let me give you an example of how we take a patient through that. About seven or eight years ago, a young woman who was a very accomplished professional woman came to me, and she had known that she had an arteriovenous malformation in her brain. She had just become married, and she was trying to plan a family. And we know, and she knew, that the risk of having a hemorrhage from an arteriovenous malformation when you're pregnant is probably increased by a factor of about eight. So it's a significant risk. And we've just recently found that out. So what I did with her is we first defined that risk, what we call the natural history. Uh, in other words, what would happen if we did nothing for the patient and for this arteriovenous malformation? And after going through that and all the options for various forms of treatment for that, she and I came to the conclusion that the best thing would be for her to have the lesion removed. And that's what we did. We first embolized the arteriovenous malformation where we put a catheter inside the artery that supplied it and injected some particles or material to uh, block off some of the blood vessels. And then we go in and with the microscope, we remove the arteriovenous malformation by dividing little blood vessels that feed it, and eventually just taking it out. And when we do that, we really diminish or, or pretty much eliminate the risk of hemorrhage. And in her case, it was very rewarding for all of us because about three years, three or four years later, she had two beautiful children. 
And that was a, you know, an example of a risky situation potentially that worked out well. And, and the whole principle was that she was uh, with me, with me helping her. She was managing that risk. And, you know, I keep in touch with her and I'm just always uh, so impressed by her courage and, and the way she dealt with that whole thing. So it, it, that's one of the nice things about being a neurosurgeon, too, is you get to witness that courage. Water is the ultimate health drink. With Culligan's filtration systems, you'll get the superior quality and pure tasting, ultra-refreshing hydration you can count on to power your performance. Culligan's smart reverse osmosis systems take it to the next level, helping you set hydration goals, track how much you're drinking, and even see what contaminants are reduced in your water. That means you're always getting the exceptional water you need to feel truly good inside and out, ready to face the day and whatever challenges it brings. Learn more at Culligan.com. In your experience, as you're helping these patients manage risk, because the point is the patients are managing the risk, do you find that people struggle with this or they can rise to the occasion? Because this is very emotional as well. You know, trying to look at this clinically as the patient is, I imagine, really difficult. It is stressful and, and it is very emotional. What we try to do is get to a situation where the treatment that we're recommending and conducting is much, much more favorable at changing the natural history than the potential for risk. In other words, we want to get that ratio of benefit to risk as high as we can. When we do that, you know, and we take the patient through it slowly and, and continuously, generally people can get through. Uh, amazing struggles. And uh, I, I think in, in general, most people are able to do that. You know, Ralph, it's interesting. You talk about different senses of risk between what you do and what Sandra and I did. But I think we both experienced both of those. I know not only, you know, doing dangerous things myself, but, you know, sending young men and women into combat. And Sandra was the, what, the deputy of the astronaut office having, you know, decide who's going to ride the next, you know, shuttle. And I would tell you, and I think Sandra might agree that it's actually harder to do it for somebody else than it is for yourself. Uh, so it just increases my level of respect that you would take such an awesome responsibility to make sure the person understands the risk and then, then you actually carry it through. So my hat's off to you for that. Uh, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, we actually will have some videos with the permission of the, the person, uh, a couple of people you, you were going to talk about that we'll put on our website if people are interested in learning more about this fascinating look at what it is like to actually do neurosurgery. So our listeners should be ready for that. You know, at the core of all this and explaining the risk level to the, the patients, there has to be a pretty good understanding about the brain and how it works. So you understand the nature of the impact of different kinds of operations you're going. So I've always been fascinated with the brain and how it's structured. So how does it, I mean, you know for sure what sections of the brain you can touch or not touch in any given organization, uh, any given operations. How, how does that work? How does that amazing organ do its job? It's so mysterious. <laughs> yeah, well, it is wonderful and mysterious. And there's so much research going on right now about that, that it really, our knowledge base changes daily, really. But, you know, the, the brain is, is, weighs about three pounds. It is made up of about 86 million neurons or nerve cells. And there are electrochemical events that occur in the nerve cells that cause the impulses to be propagated through the networks of nerve cells that form as we are 
you know, develop as children. And then as we learn, and we've really learned a lot about, about these networks most recently about how that represents, uh, you know, the way we can achieve things either with movement or speech or uh, using our senses. The main parts of the, of the nervous system are the uh, uh, cerebral hemispheres, the cerebellum, the, mid, the uh, uh, brain stem, and the spinal cord. And then the peripheral nerves carry impulses to the muscles and, and back from the uh, sensory receptors. So it's all integrated. It obviously is an is a extremely complex thing. And neurosurgeons and neurobiologists and neurologists are constantly increasing our ability to understand how it works and how the diseases that affect it can be treated more effectively. So it is, it is fascinating and, you know, something you can get interested in for a lifetime, that's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. In researching for this amazing discussion we're having, I was really impressed by the sort of dazzling different types of operations you can actually perform on the brain. There's just so many of them out there. I can't imagine how you could even learn them all in seven years as a resident. But can you sort of walk our listeners through the broad uh, sort of generic types of things that you do in neurosurgery when you're operating on a patient? Well, the most common things that we take care of are its head and spinal cord injuries, various kinds of stroke, especially strokes that are characterized by bleeding into the brain, a variety of different kinds of brain tumors, which there are many, many kinds of brain tumors, and they can occur in many different locations. And so that can be a very complicated thing. Neurosurgeons also work on the spine and peripheral nerves, and that's a lot of, of, of what we do, decompressing the spinal cord and the nerves that relate to it. And, uh, and then there's a whole bunch of things that affect children, like Jay Wellens uh, does that kind of work with uh, congenital malformations and uh, tumors and injuries just like that. So those are the sort of the five major disciplines within our specialty. And there's a tendency for neurosurgeons to subspecialize in those areas. Like some neurosurgeons principally do spinal neurosurgery. Some neurosurgeons concentrate on tumors. Other neurosurgeons concentrated on diseases of the, of the, uh, of the vascular system, the blood vessels. So it is a very broad field. But I think in general, when we uh, learn to focus on one area, we can really become very skilled at doing that there are situations where surgery is not available. For example, my father had progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a degenerative, as you know, a neurodegenerative disease. And so I imagine there's some other types of diseases like that, which come across your desk that you just can't help with. And what happens with those people? Right. Well, there are a lot of neurological diseases that now cannot be treated effectively by either you know, drugs or, or surgery. But we're trying to, to change that in our specialty. For example, there's some evidence that by very specific paradigms of stimulation of the brain with minimally invasive uh, stimulating devices, that we may be able to improve memory and uh, treat people with refractory depression. So we are working constantly with the neurologists on trying to expand our ability to take care of all the diseases that affect the brain. But, you know, there are many that we can't successfully treat now, like progressive supranuclear palsy. It's just so complicated, isn't it? 
It's just amazing. So speaking of complicated, Sandra and I lived in a world where there was a process, right? If you're going to launch a spacecraft or you're going to launch and recover an airplane, uh, you go through a process. I, I think it might be interesting for our listeners to kind of hear from you, you know, how, from start to finish, how does this work? You, you, uh, obviously you're, you're studying the operation that needs to be performed if it's, if it's a, you know, an, a deliberate one rather than an emergent one, but walk us through what happens in the operating room. Sure. Well, you know, the, the team in the operating room consists of a surgeon, an assistant surgeon, a circulating nurse, a scrub nurse or technician, and an anesthesiologist or a certified uh, nurse anesthetist. So that's the team. You know, let's say we were going to fix an aneurysm in, in someone's brain, one that had not yet ruptured, but we were going to fix it. So the way we would do that is that the surgeon and the assistant surgeon would go out to the preparation area, that's the sort of the ready room, and um, talk to the patient, make sure that we have identified the patient, that we know what operation the patient thinks he's going to have done. And uh, we actually then take out a marking pen and write on their skin, yes, for the site of the surgery. Because obviously we're very, very careful about making sure we do the right surgery on the right patient in the right location. So once that's done, we then bring the patient back to the operating room. Uh, we put the patient very carefully on the operating room table. The um, anesthesiologist would then induce the appropriate kind of anesthesia. And then we take a lot of time positioning the patient very carefully because, for example, if a lesion is at the back of the head behind the ear, we want to have optimal access to that area. And we have to put the patient sometimes in some complicated positions to do that. And we take a lot of time doing that and we're very careful doing that. So once that's all done, we uh, do a sterile preparation of the skin and drape it off with sterile drapes. And then we stop and we have this thing called a timeout where everyone agrees that the surgery is going to be done in this way at this location for this problem. And the operation can't go forward unless we do that. And everybody has to stop what they're doing and pay attention to that. Then, you know, the surgeon will begin the operation by making an incision in the skin. If it's, if it's an operation, like I said, an aneurysm in the head, uh, we would pull the, the scalp back out of the way, move some of the muscles, like the temporalis muscle that clinches our jaw, and then open the, the skull with some power tools that are specially designed for that. And um, that whole opening process takes about a half an hour or so. Then we bring in the operative microscope, the operating microscope, and we, we carefully open up the fissures of the brain, uh, especially the, what we call the sylvian fissure, or the lateral fissure between the temporal lobe and the frontal lobe. And then we go down and identify the artery which is bearing the aneurysm. And we we spent time understanding the uh, anatomy of the aneurysm based on the preoperative x-rays. And then we very carefully defined the vessels that are going into the aneurysm and the ones that are coming out. Once we've done that, we place a clip across the aneurysm, the neck of the aneurysm, to make sure that it doesn't rupture. Then we make sure that there's no more bleeding going on around the operative site. And then we close the dura, which is that thick leather-like membrane that's over the brain. And then we plate the, uh, the skull back in place with some little microplates that are 
uh, often made of titanium. And then we close the muscle and scalp in layers, put a dressing on the patient, and then wake them up. We then have a post-operative brief or debriefing um, with the whole team. And then the patient is taken back to the recovery room. And again, at that point, the, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist will communicate with the nurses and other people in the recovery area. So there's, you know, continuity of care. So there's a big emphasis on safety, a big emphasis on communication. And of course, we've learned that from the aviation community and, you know, the Navy, Sandy, as we've talked about. And, and so it's much better now than, than I think it used to be because of this emphasis on safety and clear communication. You live to embrace risk in the air, on the slopes, and anywhere your determination takes you. But when it comes to the drinking water that fuels your adventures, you're not looking to take chances. With cutting-edge filtration that can target contaminants as small as a single atom, Culligan's reverse osmosis filtration systems deliver the next-level hydration you need to keep working at peak performance, whatever the day brings. Get started by scheduling your free water test at Culligan.com. It has to be amazing to operate on a three-dimensional object into which you, you really can't see easily, uh, you know, the tumor you're going after or whatever. And, and you're doing it in proximity to some really important and vulnerable structures in the brain that if you don't, don't get to the right place and do the right thing, you can end up really hindering that person's future life. So that kind of concentration seems like it's intense. It's of a different type. Landing on an aircraft carrier at night seems very similar, but how do you navigate? Uh, how do you find your way around inside the brain? I think there's two aspects of that. One is we have some great technology, which is uh, stereotactic guidance, which is basically similar to a GPS that we'd use on our phone or our car. And that allows us to triangulate the position in three-dimensional space of the instruments that we're using. For example, atta attacking something like a colloid system, the third ventricle right in the middle of the brain, we can go right to that using this stereotactic guidance introduced through a very small hole in the skull, and we can get where we need to be. But in addition to that technical support, we also have to have a good visual-spatial orientation to where we are in the brain at any point. And that comes by doing many operations and studying the anatomy in extreme detail so we can know exactly where we are uh, at any one moment. And I think it is similar to what I've heard described about landing a, a, a jet on a carrier, in that you constantly have to be oriented not only to uh, flying the ball, for example, but also to, you know, where you are and what's going on and how it feels. So it's, it's, it's both the technical and the, uh, and, the, and the sensory aspect of it. You know, we fly the station robot arm in a similar way before the workstation moved to a window. We had to put three different views, camera views together to understand where we were in three-dimensional space. And we actually trained in virtual, well, at the time it was not as advanced as now, but virtual reality to try and get some of that spatial awareness built into us. Do you guys use technology like that for training? Increasingly, we're doing that, Sandra. That's a very good point. I've looked at some of those videos about how those devices work uh, in the space program. And, and so we, we have a lot of great uh, simulation devices which are being developed now. 
One thing about that that's interesting is that the, the sensory feedback or the haptic feedback we get from holding an instrument, even though we're making very small moves and everything with microsurgery, that's hard to simulate right now. Yeah. But it's getting better and better all the time. And uh, that's a, a big part of, of uh, what we do. There are great simulators now for teaching neurosurgeons how to do endovascular procedures where it's all through a catheter introduced, let's say, in the radial artery in the wrist to go up and fix an aneurysm or another lesion in the brain circulation. So simulators are very, very good for that. Ralph, we've, you and I have talked in the past about the comparison of the operational excellence principles that we use in the nuclear Navy and what you do in the operating room. You know, things like integrity, level of knowledge, uh, procedural compliance, formal communications, forceful backup, being able to say stop at any particular point and a questioning attitude. We've already sort of alluded to a few of those already, but uh, talk to me a little bit about the formal communications and the sort of forceful backup. You've got a surgeon and an assistant surgeon. Is there a, a cadence going back and forth between the two of you where oh, I'm about to do this? Okay, I understand you're about to do that. Uh, how does that work? Yeah, th there is. And, and, you know, we've really learned that, Sandy, from the aviation community. And, you know, we're all exposed to the communications that occur in the uh, space program, too. So, you know, we, we've really learned from, from you about that. We are, are very deliberate about how we communicate before the operation and during the operation. And I think it's kind of an art to learn how to develop that rhythm or tempo between the surgeon and the uh, scrub nurse and scrub tech. Some of the scrub techs I've worked with are really athletes. They can be looking, for example, at the monitor of the microsurgery, and they know what instrument we need before we need it. And they've got it in our hands before we even ask for it sometimes. So that kind of sort of sinking of, uh, of uh, objectives is, is, is really a, a good thing. But we're also very, very deliberate about using clear-cut and simple communication to make the whole thing work. Because if we don't communicate well, we increase the risk. The forceful backup is definitely something that's much more prominent now in the operating room and in, in any kind of medical situation. So any member of the team is encouraged to speak up if they don't think something's going properly or there's a problem. And if, we, if someone does that, we basically stop and um, try to figure out what the problem is. And that has been a great improvement in the way we do things in, in surgery and in medical care in general. So we've learned from you, from both of you, and thanks for that. Well, you know, you mentioned earlier that you do a, a post-debrief in the operating room afterwards, just like we do, because you learn things when you have such a highly technical and, and risky process. So how do you take the next step or the, what you've learned from a, an operation, good or bad, technique-wise or communication-wise, and share that across the whole community so that those lessons learned are, are not just within the surgical team that you happen to be managing, but across the whole neurosurgical community. Do you have processes for that? We do. We have, we have multiple ways in which we do that. We, we, we have quality and improvement conferences every month where, where every case is reviewed and lessons uh, learned are provided and discussed in detail with the group. 
right within our practice group. We spend a lot of time doing exactly that at our national meetings where we all get together and talk about how to do things better, new discoveries, new ways of doing things. And uh, there's a big emphasis on that. And there's a big premium placed on being honest and forthright in, in talking about our complications. I have a great friend down in uh, Miami, whose name is Roberto Harros, and he's known throughout the world as being an incredible neurosurgeon and teacher because he is able to, just in a very forthright way, discuss the complications he's had and turn that into lessons for, for the rest of us. So there's a big premium on that among the leaders of our specialty. And uh, it's an important thing for us to do, obviously, as it is for you. Well, uh, Dr. Dacey, as we, as we come to a sort of a closing point here, I, I, I just have to say that highs in this business must be really, really high and the lows have to be very low. What's that like? And, and how do you handle that personally? Knowing that you've either, you know, really, really uh, helped somebody carry forward with their life or that there, there might not have been much you, you could do. Well, the highs are great and there's no question about it. And uh, it's, it's very, very exciting when you can help a person through a dangerous situation and they survive and, and thrive after that. And that's, that's what we live for. But as you said, there also is the situation where we have woes and those where we haven't been able to help a patient or procedure hasn't gone exactly as we would have hoped it, it, it would have gone. And you remember those cases and you, know, you remember them for, for years and you really never forget about them. I think one way that we deal with that is that in any practice group, the senior people talk to the people who are, who are now coming up and we discuss that. And um, over the years, I've been in a position to help people surgeons get through that after they're dealing with a complication or an, or an adverse outcome. And uh, it's important that we support each other and at the same time, learn from our mistakes and learn from the things that we haven't done as well as we could have. But overall, I would say it's a very rewarding life as a neurosurgeon because I think the highs definitely outnumber the lows. Well, Dr. Dacey, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this amazingly complex profession that you've that you've had. And congratulations on a wonderful career and and most uh, most especially on the mentoring that you've done over the years and all of the other neurosurgeons you've trained in your position there at Washington University while you were we were heading that organization. But again, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really amazing to to listen to your stories. Again, uh, really good to see you, my friend, and thanks for spending time with us today. It's been terrific. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Ralph Dacey, former chair of neurosurgery at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Don't forget to check out the additional videos we're posting about how neurosurgery really looks and feels at our website, theadrenalinezone.com. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. Get exceptional water for exceptional performance. Learn more at Culligan.com. And check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with Dr. Dacey on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.